So many teenagers waiting to be adopted from foster care feel like their lives are over. They've given up hope of having a permanent home and are terrified of aging out with no support system. Right now, more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is dedicated to finding them the right family before it's too late. Learn how you can help at davethomasfoundation.org slash learn more. Welcome to The Beat. I'm Ari Melbourne. We begin tonight with breaking news. Just within the past part of this afternoon, we got a whole bunch of receipts. This is the new document filing. If you follow the news, you may have heard it's coming into today. You may have seen some reports on it here in today's news coverage. Well, we have it. The filing of this big billion-dollar-plus case against Fox News. That's a defamation case against Fox by one of the voting machine companies. Now, why is this the top story in the nation tonight? Because, as partly expected, there are more new, original, bombshell revelations that I'm going to go through with you right now before I bring in our experts, including from all the way to the top. Rupert Murdoch admitting things under oath that, well, let's just say he doesn't admit when he's not forced into a courtroom looking at a billion-dollar-plus fine. Murdoch admits that selected Fox hosts completely endorsed the lie about Donald Trump and the election. Murdoch asked under oath whether some of the hosts endorsed the big lie that the election was stolen, that he didn't actually lose. And Murdoch replies, yes, they endorsed. And that's not all. Under oath, we find a very different Murdoch. He's a business titan. He has all kinds of experience. He has communication skills. He has strategy. But he also understands something that goes to why we've covered this case from the beginning, why accountability still can matter in this country, that some questions cannot be dodged under oath without risking committing perjury. And that's why we're hearing this very different Mr. Murdoch than we hear from, say, Fox earnings calls or when he speaks in other forums. Under oath, we're hearing a Murdoch who needs to be clear about the facts. And the facts are they lied, they knew it, and it went to the top. Now, he doesn't throw everyone under the bus, but he does admit that some executives were out of line, and he talks about how some hosts, like Janine Pirro and Maria Bartiromo, endorsed and pushed what they knew to be a dangerous lie. I assume that you are getting to the bottom of exactly what Dominion is. You said that there may have been kickbacks to some uh, people who accepted the Dominion software. There's also the question of accountability. This is a case that is about lies. It's about the reaction to those lies. And it's also about how, according to the plaintiffs who are suing Fox, they say they have the evidence that shows Fox News, after it discovered lies and after it knew what it was doing, it continued to do it. And that goes to accountability. That's the opposite of, say, catching someone who is using the platform to commit defamation and removing them or removing executives who support that. So the company here suing Fox is pushing for a range of accountability, including, as mentioned, a billion plus dollars in penalties. So in this new deposition we got, a lawyer asked, what should the consequences be when Fox News executives knowingly allow lies to be broadcast? And Murdoch responds, they should be reprimanded. They should be reprimanded, maybe got rid of. Now, that's striking. Because what Mr. Murdoch is apparently trying to do is walk the line, even maybe give up certain members of his team or show a willingness to do so, give up some ground while still trying to protect the rest of the Fox empire. And let me tell you, it looks like Rupert Murdoch, who is very important in this, he's also someone someone with the 
position where he could decide to make this case go away if he wanted to offer settlement payments. He is trying to do more than one thing. None of this is happening in a bubble. I want you to recall that when we talk about consequences, the Fox empire already canceled an entire show of Lou Dobbs, a pretty famous but controversial media figure, and that was after they were warned about getting sued for a lot of money in these kind of cases. So that is part of what's happening here. Do you remove executives? Do you remove other people? Do you course correct in some way when the receipts inside this case also show a culture and an executive operation inside Fox that up to the top was pretty down with lies, which is the opposite of journalism and makes it harder for them to defend themselves in this case. Now, Murdoch was motivated to keep everything going as it was going in November and December. They expected Trump to leave the White House. They didn't know necessarily what would happen on January 6th, but they fed the lies that led people to act out that day. Today's filing also reveals when asked why Fox continues to give a platform to, for example, Mike Lindell, who continues to this day to lie about Dominion, Murdoch said, it's not red or blue, it's green. Even in a short-form answer, he has his gift of soundbite, you might say. Now, he's trying to argue that this basically is a type of defense, that they're doing business, not being malicious. That's one of the things legally he needs to try to argue. It sounds like something may be bad if green money is the motivation to do shoddy, damaging, or even defamatory media. But what he's trying to say is they weren't malicious, they weren't doing this for politics, and that's his sort of partial defense. Well, it's not a very good one. And money as a motivator does not, of course, defend you against outright knowing defamation. So Murdoch also admits there wasn't enough voter fraud to change the outcome. Everybody knows that. The question is asked, is it fair to say you seriously doubted any claim of massive election fraud? And he says, yes. And you seriously doubted it from the very beginning. And Murdoch under oath says, yes. I mean, we thought everything was on the up and up. I think that was shown when we announced Arizona. Murdoch referring to something that so triggered Donald Trump and his fans that Fox was one of the very first outlets to call that key state, which at the time meant, well, Trump was losing. Murdoch also admits that he could have taken measures that he failed to take. For example, when they saw that people, certain guests were just pushing lies, were not credible, were not newsworthy if they just came back and said the same lie over and over, he didn't do anything. So this is another interesting thing. Again, new out tonight. Could he have stopped Giuliani from being put on air? We all remember how that went. And Murdoch faces the question. Could you have said to Suzanne Scott, that's their CEO or the host, stop putting Giuliani on the air? And he says, I could have, but I didn't. Machines can be hacked. There's no question about that. Their machines can be hacked. Because it's not a singular voter fraud in one state. This pattern repeats itself in a number of states. That is just a sampling. We are not going to give over too much of our airwaves to showing what is now evidence of defamation to the tune of $1.6 billion against Fox. Now, we told you from the beginning this was a big case. We did not know the evidence was going to be this big. We didn't know that some of the hosts and executives kept committing to writing so many things that are incriminating for them. That's why it's big news. Now, If you followed Mr. Murdoch's career, and I've done some reports on him here, as a factual matter, you don't get very far usually betting against him. Even when he's down or seemingly out, he finds ways to pivot. And sometimes that means throwing people under the bus. 
He seems willing and ready to do that here, at least with some of his so-called executive team. Sometimes it means getting rid of entire famous anchors, which they did with Dobbs, and which some companies who are suing Fox feel is a step and a sign that they knew they'd gone too far. But whether you count Mr. Murdoch out or not, what we're seeing, filing after filing, day after day, is a case where there is so much mounting evidence that if this does get to trial, that might be the worst thing for the Fox News empire and Rupert Murdoch that we've seen in years. And according to the plaintiffs, that would be a very good thing indeed for restoring some standard of truth and accountability in our polarized politics and media at a time when people are trying to literally overthrow the government, commit sedition, and kill innocent Americans in the name of lies that they often heard on Fox News. With that in mind, we want to bring in two experts on this, NYU Law Professor Melissa Murray and Daily Beast reporter Will Sommer, who's written extensively about this, including a book about conspiracy theories. Uh, Welcome to both of you. Uh, Professor, I want to go to you first. Every time there's a filing, we do seem to see uh, some real evidence, whether it's on the deposition side, people forced into some level of admission, uh, or, of course, some of those damning texts we've seen. Uh, I laid out some of what's new tonight. I'm, I'm curious what stands out to you. Well, there's a lot here. I mean, this is the defamation case to end all defamation cases. Like, you typically don't get defamation cases with this much evidence, in part because for a large corporation like this, the standard is actually so high, actual malice under New York Times versus Sullivan. But you have so much evidence here that goes all the way to the top. Rupert Murdoch conceding that, yes, he could have done something, but he didn't. You have the general counsel, Viet Din, saying, like, yes, this is a really bad idea to allow these individuals who you know to be lying to have a platform, yet we did it nonetheless. So these are sort of blockbuster admissions that you don't ordinarily have in a case like this. And the other thing that's quite striking, although not necessarily relevant to the defamation claim, is just how interwoven this news organization, this separate business, this media platform is with the Republican Party. Over and over again, Rupert Murdoch discusses reaching out to his good friend, Jared Kushner, or reaching out to Mitch McConnell, not necessarily to talk about election fraud, but it just makes the point that Fox News is essentially a mouthpiece for this party. It is not necessarily an independent news source that's very much in bed with the Republican Party. Yeah, that's a point we wanted to get to, Professor. It's really striking. And, Will, I'm curious how you see the information warfare and propaganda in that, because it's a Republican Party uh, that really works with Fox as a lever. Uh, We've shown on our air, for example, Sean Hannity doing endorsement events. You know, there's a lot of criticism of the media. uh, The media has to keep an open mind to criticism. Um, But very you'll be very hard pressed to find reporters uh, at The New York Times, uh, The Wall Street Journal, the AP, your outlet, uh, who go out and do campaign events endorsing any politician, any party. Uh, with Vox, it's just regular. The former Republican speaker's on their board. He comes from a different wing of the party. And the new evidence shows his concern, which in the case is bad for them because it shows they had people on the inside warning about this. Uh, here's the Paul Ryan email. And this is the top. You don't usually see this stuff. Uh, quote, Ryan believes some high percentage of Americans thought the election was stolen because they got a diet of information telling them the election was stolen from what they believed were credible sources. Murdoch responds, wake up call for Hannity, who's been privately disgusted by Trump for weeks, but was scared to lose viewers. Uh, What do you see here, Will? 
Sure. I mean, I think there's so much interesting stuff in these materials. You know, you talk about that Fox News as a wing of the Republican Party. One of the most striking things out of this case for me has been an email where Rupert Murdoch said, let's just focus on electing Republican senators in Georgia. And really, you know, you can watch an hour of Fox News and get the sense that they're trying to help Republicans. But to have it put that plainly, I think, is remarkable. Um, you know, additionally, you really see it laid out there, that desperation where Fox is kind of stuck between the truth and the risk of a libel lawsuit and their viewers. And so in this new filing, we see Fox executives freaking out about the ratings. We see Lachlan Murdoch, Rupert's son, saying, I'm really worried about the ratings. These are keeping me up at night. So really that sense that they were under siege and that they really had to almost ramp up the lying to their audience because they are so afraid of, of this audience they've created through lying. Yeah, and Will, that they had competition uh, from people who were not to the right of Fox, but just more irresponsible, reckless, and full of lies. And I, I say that very carefully because a marketplace of ideas and here's a more conservative offering, cool, whatever, to watch what you like. Um, but what you had was the uh, imitation of a television program over on, on programs like Newsmax that were more blatantly trying to present a world where Trump was reelected. Uh, and it's no secret that if you're willing to go that far, you're going to find an audience um, in the same way that cults do, Will. Yeah, you can see these uh, in these emails. They're, they're looking at Newsmax, for example, one of their right wing competitors. And they're saying, look, who, well, I've never heard of these guys. And they're suddenly pulling these massive ratings because they're pulling our viewers away. I mean, in these messages, you know, Don, uh, Tucker Carlson is talking about Trump as a demonic force who could destroy them all. Um, and that really comes across in the filing today as well. This idea that th this massive wealth machine they had created could could be destroyed essentially by the truth. Yeah. Professor Murray, I also want to show what Murdoch is good at is trying to thread this needle. It's not his first rodeo. He points to some of their coverage and keeps trying to make the argument, well, uh, that Fox was just mentioning or covering this stuff. Well, number one, uh, it's noticeable many outlets covered aspects of this. Um, none of them are being sued for this kind of defamation. Uh, there is a way to cover this with fact checking, just like on this program. We have guests uh, from all, all wings of Congress, there's a way to do that without joining or, as Rupert admitted, endorsing lies. Um, Tucker Carlson would sort of bounce around. Sometimes he did, and we've reported this, um, seem to criticize certain things in public that Sidney Powell was saying. But then he would sort of use his framework to concern troll or suggest that, well, this stuff really should be looked at. And so if you're giving time to a flat earther or a Holocaust denier at a certain clip uh, while saying, we don't know, it's a trick, but it still can act uh, to endorse. And the question in the courts for you, I want to play this and get your response, is whether this rises to becoming part of the defamation case. Um, let's take a look at this. Tens of millions of Americans suspect this election was stolen from them. That means we now live in a country where a large percentage of our population no longer believes that our democracy is real. That is sad. It is also dangerous. At this stage, the fraud that we can confirm does not seem to be enough to alter the election results. Of course, that could change. The real point is that fraud took place. I'm curious what you, what you think of what he's doing there uh, stacked against uh, what Murdoch says. Uh, oh, Tucker was just saying it's nonsense. 
Yeah, I mean, this has to be the defense that Fox tries to pursue here in order to defeat a claim of defamation where the standard is actual malice under New York Times versus Sullivan. You have to show that you weren't actually acting with malice, that you were simply reporting on topics that were generally newsworthy. And it was newsworthy at the time to talk about the possibility of election fraud. And Tucker Carlson is admitting this is something that Americans have on their minds at this point in time. But I think what's so spectacularly stunning about this evidence and that's been presented in this summary judgment motion is that the volume of it really isn't the kind of volume you would expect for a newspaper outlet or a media outlet that was simply reporting on the news. Like they know and they talk about how much they know this is improbable or unlikely or that some of the allegations that are being made by individuals that they platform on their station are actually far too extreme than what would be acceptable in ordinary discourse or even just questioning. So there is a point here where in the aggregate, all of this evidence seems to suggest that this was a company that knew that these allegations were likely spurious and continued to feed them to cultivate this environment in which something like January 6th might happen because they were credibly spreading the notion that the election, in fact, had been stolen. Right. I mean, you make several important points. And your final point, that it fed that insurrection, is something that Paul Ryan was concerned about. Uh, He's a very conservative Republican. He had access to the hosts, Murdoch, and how everything works. Uh, The fact that he, on the inside, shared that same concern is really damning. And I say that, uh, and I hate to repeat myself, JK, uh, the professor knows that's part of my job here on on the news. But to repeat myself, uh, we will defend every media outlet's First Amendment rights, including their right to be whatever ideological place they want to be. This this can't be about that. And we don't on this program want to go anywhere near using defamation laws to punish disagreement, ideology, freedom of speech. Um, but boy, is it a lot of evidence that they weren't doing that that on the inside, they were knowingly lying. I'm running out of time, but you look like you have one more thing to say, Professor. Just like, again, where we are in this lawsuit, this is a motion for summary judgment. So the question here is, is this judge going to decide this on the papers, or does the judge believe that there are sufficient questions of fact that are left open that could proceed to a trial? And it seems that here, Dominion is saying, you have everything you need to know to establish that there was actual malice here and that they, in fact, defamed Dominion. And the question will be, for Rupert Murdoch and Fox News Corp., whether or not this actually proceeds to a trial because there are some open questions. It seems here this might be an open and shut case. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's been building up that way. Uh, Professor Murray Wilsommer, thanks to both of you. We have more on this breaking news, including what is going to come towards Rupert Murdoch. And we're back in one minute. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.
We're back with Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post columnist Gene Robinson and that big defamation filing today. We've been talking about it. Gene, welcome back. Thanks, Ari. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch is someone that you have been uh, aware of for a long time. He he has a mm-hmm. zealot-like uh, presence in so many yeah. political stories in more than one country. Um, he's telling some truths here, best I can tell, while also being strategic. Um, but rarely do we get him under oath like this about American media and politics. Let me read to you a quick one for your response, including anything you want to say about the, the story in general tonight. Uh, Rupert says in the deposition, newly released, quote, he didn't want to antagonize Trump because he had a very large following and there were probably mostly viewers of Fox. So that would have been stupid. Um, he's really giving up motivations, sometimes political, sometimes the green we mentioned at the top of the hour. What do you see him doing here in a case where the numbers are actually big enough to affect him and his company? Right. Well, look, you got to, you know, he, he knows how to count, right? He doesn't, he doesn't want to lose all this money. Um, and uh, and Fox is a huge money machine. Uh, so he is trying to walk a line. He's, he's he probably understands um, Sullivan versus New York Times. He understands what the standard is for defamation. And he's trying to give answers that keep him on the right side of this. And, you know, I, look, I've been a journalist all my life. And, and, and normally in a libel case, in a defamation case, I'm going to be bending over backwards to defend the rights of a news organization sure. um, to, to print and say and broadcast, you know, what it feels it needs to do in the public interest. However, um, I was reading through this filing, and this does not sound like any news organization I've ever been, been associated with, certainly, or any news organization I've, I've ever known from the inside. This is, uh, this is crazy. This is all about audience strategies. It's all about telling people what um, is more likely to make them keep watching Fox rather than telling people any truth. And to get to the heart of the case, that involved telling them these outrageous lies about Dominion, which they knew were lies. They knew that Sidney Powell, who was saying all the stuff about the company, you know, being founded by Hugo Chavez, long dead in Venezuela, rigged the balloting and stuff. They knew it was crazy. They knew she was crazy, but they kept putting her on. They knew Mike Lundell, the pillow guy, was crazy. They kept putting him on. They knew, they knew these things, uh, yet they committed what I've always been taught is is the sin, the greatest sin, which is you cannot tell your readers, your viewers, something that you know is false. You can't do it. And that's what Fox News did time and time again. Yeah. You mentioned uh, how it contrasts to your extensive journalism experience in every other newsroom. Um, what does it mean for Fox to have this curtain pulled back? Um, because there are many people who are critical, even dismissive of Fox, uh, of its propriety, not its perhaps its influence. And yet I got to tell you, Gene, in, in plain English, some of what's in here is worse at the executive yeah. level and the, to the top yeah. people than, than you, we might have known. Yeah, it's worse than I imagined. It, it, it really is, because, you know, I know. Some people who work at Fox, who I consider to be um, not just actual journalists, but some who are good journalists and and, and who have uh, news values that I recognize and and respect. And but but here you're reading the executives at the at the 
top levels uh, who are speaking on a language that no journalist, no real journalist would understand or accept. Um, I, nobody ever talked like this at the Washington Post. I, I, it never, ever. It just, it just, it's not in our DNA, and, I, and it's not supposed to be in the DNA of what I think of as journalism. Uh, to tell people what you know are lies, what you know is not true. It's just crazy, and it's all about the green, as as Rupert said. It's all you know. There's a, on page seventeen. There, it's, it, there's a section that starts in which how, how frantic the executives are at the thought that they're going to lose um, viewers to to Newsmax right. and OAN, OAN if they tell the truth. If they so we can't do that. We can't. We can't level with our audience because heaven forfend, we will lose viewers. That's not the way journalism works. Right. And we have a very recent one-to-one comparison. There are many newspapers uh, that for a range of structural reasons, were losing a lot of readers and losing traction and losing money. Um, and mm-hmm. many of those papers continued to keep their factual boundaries, and some of them pivoted and survived, and some we know hit harder times and layoffs. Um, Of course, if you print lies on the front page, if you abuse and corrupt the one thing that is the baseline of journalism, you could find an audience for that. Indeed, that's why conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. move so far. Um, None of those newspapers that I'm aware of um, did anything mm-hmm. like what Fox was doing on the road to the insurrection. So, the, again, the way people get cynical and say, oh, that's business. No, there's a lot of private company newspapers yeah. that didn't do it. Um, Gene, appreciate your candor and your perspective mm-hmm. uh, on the journalism front of this big legal story tonight. Thanks, Ari. Good to be here. Absolutely. Thanks, Gene. Um, we've got a lot more in the show, including Neil Kotchel coming up on those developments in Georgia. From what's on the ground to the Trump lawyers' complaints to Saturday Night Live taking its swing at the grand juror, all of that, next. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Donald Trump's lawyers are eyeing whether any more bad news might come out of Georgia. There have been signs. There have been recommendations of indictments, to be clear. All this noise has not yet led to any new indictments, let alone anything about Donald Trump himself. But one of the grand jurors, of course, made waves. I bet you heard about it when she spoke about the case for the first time last week. There were headlines. There was criticism. There was counter-criticism of the criticism. Now Trump's lawyers say they will try to use her interviews as ammunition if there are any future indictments. We've lost 100 percent confidence in this process. We feel this process has been compromised. If any indictments were to come down, those are faulty indictments. We will absolutely fight anything tooth and nail. That is their right. And when we first reported this story, you may recall the discussions among legal experts about how this was unusual and questions over whether any lines were crossed. Now, the judge who actually personally oversaw this exact process has spoken out publicly as well, 
saying, quote, grand jurors are not prohibited from talking about witnesses or prosecutors, nor are they prohibited from talking about the fruit of their deliberations, which would be the final report. I'm joined now by Neil Katchel, former acting solicitor general for the Obama administration and an MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, Good to have you back, Neil. There's more than one layer here, including the way that this four-person forecast possible further indictments, which is interesting. Um, One, now that the dust has settled a little bit, what do you think of what she told us about the process? And two, how do you analyze the Trump lawyers' potential objections, which they seem to be referencing only on the fear that their client may be indicted? Yeah, so I think that this grand juror made a mistake by doing this amount of talking. I don't think it's uh, the right thing to do. She might face some personal liability, Ari, for her statements. But the judge's remarks today, I think, suggest, you know, Georgia law is different than other jurisdictions. The deliberations of the grand jury, the fruits of it, at least, belong to the Georgian people. And therefore, the theory goes, uh, you know, she's able to talk about it. That's a far crime from Trump being able to make something of this. I mean, of course, he's going to attack the grand jury as rigged. When he loses in the grand jury, he's going to attack the election is rigged when he loses in the election. I think if his hair blew the wrong way because of the weather, he'd attack the weather is rigged. I mean, that's just his playbook. But the question is, will it be successful as a legal challenge? And I think the answer to that is undoubtedly no. Even if she did something wrong, which that's a big if, it doesn't benefit Trump because Trump would have to show unfair publicity. And that legal standard is incredibly high. Hmm. Uh, Mr. Findling is one of the Georgia lawyers here who has been detailed to Trump's criminal defense. Uh, Here is what he told Face the Nation. It looks like they lost perspective over keeping separation between prosecuting attorneys and the members of this grand jury. There cannot be a relationship. When the foreperson uses the word we, that lets you know there's a relationship there. When she says in interviews, certain battles were not worth us battling, it's not the special purpose grand jury that's litigating, it's the district attorney's office. Your response? Yeah, I think that's putting a lot of words in her mouth, first of all. And I'm not sure that even if you if you could draw the inference from what he's saying, that would undo something. Because after all, the grand jury, Ari, doesn't itself have the power to indict. It's up to the district attorney. And the district attorney is going to take the recommendations of the grand jury, you know, evaluate them. She's obviously been evaluating them for a while now, um, and then make a determination. And the idea that that is somehow tainted by the grand jury or this grand juror statement, I think is not going anywhere. I mean, these allegations are technical and meandering and not particularly strong. I agree the grand juror did something wrong here. It just isn't something Mm. that's going to benefit Donald Trump. Understood and appreciate the nuance. Uh, I guess the final question to you, Neil, is you take it all together. What do you think is happening in Georgia? Uh, They clearly reached a legal step where they got the recommendations from this special grand jury. Uh, the DA also has sent what in their jurisdiction is a, done a little differently, but is tantamount to a target warning, a target letter to several people. And yet all that said, months in from the letters and weeks in from the report, we haven't seen any other legal action. Do you think that it is kind of act or sit down time for this DA or could there be reasonable justifications for this taking months longer? 
So, Ari, first of all, I think we want this process to take a while. I mean, we're talking about the potential indictment of a former president of the United States, something that's never happened before in American history. So my hat's off to, you know, the DA and others to thoroughly study the case and then make a determination. Um, now, given what this grand juror has said, everyone's trying to read the tea leaves. You know, I, anyone can read them and make their make their own views. You know, for me, it does sound like the grand jury has recommended indictment of very high up people, including probably Donald Trump. Now, then it's up to the district attorney. What does she do with that? I think the evidence is very strong. And I think the idea that you can just let this skate by be one thing if Trump showed some contrition. I did something wrong here. Anything like that. He's never done anything. He's never accepted responsibility. And on something so grave, something in which a Georgia election official back, you know, even before that phone call in December said, look, Mr. President, you better stop doing this kind of stuff. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. And he kept on doing it anyway, Ori. I think that's the problem for the district attorney. I don't think anyone who's a prosecutor wants to go and, you know, get the former president. It's no fun for them. It's not the, you know, it's not like what they signed up to do to go after a president of the United States. But that's the job. And if you're handed, you know, a bunch of crimes and a recalcitrant uh, individual who is not willing to accept responsibility for what he did, the rule of law is the rule of law. And, you know, it means that it's got to be enforced. So I suspect we will see an indictment of the former president. You think based on these facts, that's where it's headed in Georgia? Yeah, I think, I mean, it'd be a hard thing to look the other way. I mean, so far, I haven't seen anything exculpatory that says he didn't do it. I mean, I know he's calling his phone call perfect, but, you know, uh, that that, ha you know, isn't worth particularly very much. Um, and I think yeah. that the evidence wow. in that call and elsewhere really demonstrates something that is on the law breaking side of things. Really interesting coming from you, sir. Uh, Neil Kotchel, thank you. Coming up, a mental health breakthrough. It involves magic mushrooms and it may save people's health. We'll explain. Coming up. A historic change in our drug laws in America. And this is what's happening right now, if you haven't heard. Oregon is the first state in the country to legalize psychedelic mushrooms, specifically for mental health use. This new Oregon law will allow the mushroom use under the supervision of a state-certified facilitator. So it's not just out for any casual experimentation. The facilitators are actually being trained in Oregon now. Now, the context here runs back a long ways in American life. The so-called magic mushrooms first classified as a Schedule I drug as part of the Nixon-era war on drugs, a crackdown on all kinds of drugs in ways that have been reconsidered over time. So the government at that time said there was no accepted medical use for these substances. Well, a lot of science is suggesting that wasn't true then or now. Indeed, there is research. This is not from people pushing mushroom experiences, but just from the normal, traditional medical research community that has found that in the right format, the use of these substances can treat PTSD, depression, anxiety, and forms of addiction. This was covered by none other than 60 Minutes just a few years back. I don't necessarily use the word happy. Comfortable. Hmm. Like, comfortable. I mean, I've suffered from anxiety my whole life. I'm comfortable. That, to me, okay, I can die. I'm comfortable. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. 
He took psilocybin in 2016. He says he hasn't had a drink since. Do you ever have a day where you wake up and you're like, man, I wish I could have a vodka right now or a beer? Never. Not at all. Not at all. Which is the craziest thing because that was my favorite thing to do. The research showing, perhaps contrary to some conventional wisdom, that selected use of this substance, for example, can, as noted there, prevent entire alcohol abuse and alcoholism. A former beat guest, Michael Pollan, has a book about this, How to Change Your Mind, and that has clearly had an impact on some of the wider public discussion. It also was turned into a popular Netflix program. But just think how much human suffering could be relieved if we have a new tool that works on depression, that works on anxiety, the fear of dying, addiction. That's a game changer. Every day since the study was my best OCD day in my life. I'm several months out. My symptoms are, I mean, zero. I want it integrated into medical care, if not in retreat centers for any human being who would like to have this experience in a safe and legal way. And for this important discussion, we're joined tonight by Oregon Congressman Earl Blumenauer. He supported that ballot initiative that we're covering and by Dr. Julie Holland, a psychiatrist and the author of Good Chemistry. Uh, Welcome to both of you. Uh, Congressman, on the policy side, let's go to you first. Um, Why did you support this? What does it mean to have this as an option regulated and safely uh, for individuals who might benefit from it? Well, Oregon's been a pioneering in terms of how we deal with uh, controlled substances. We were the very first state uh, to uh, decriminalize cannabis. And I am very pleased that we have a ballot measure that was approved by the public to be able to ex- to deal with this in a very controlled and thoughtful fashion under supervision of trained professionals, doing it slowly and thoughtfully, but unlocking the potential for, as you've mentioned, PTSD, uh, addiction, uh, anxiety, issues that really have bedeviled us. This looks to be an extraordinarily promising therapy, and Oregon is doing it right. Hmm. Uh, doctor, what are the potential benefits here? Well, uh, you know, psilocybin is probably going to be FDA approved as a treatment for depression, first and foremost. Uh, But what we've seen in the clinical trials is that it is very helpful for treating addictions, including a cigarette smoking addiction, alcoholism, obsessive compulsive disorder. There are trials looking at anorexia. I mean, basically, anytime you've got cognitive rigidity and people are very fixed into the way that they're thinking about things, if you provide them with a mushroom experience, they're going to have more flexibility in their thinking. Well, first of all, Congressman Blumenauer uh, works in the Congress. He knows all about cognitive rigidity. Um, but I appreciate the point you're raising because it would seem, and you're the doctor, so you'll educate us, but from reading about it, it would seem that part of what seems to be benefiting some patients uh, is going through a type of experience that helps them sort of break through or take away something. Uh, which is perhaps distinct from, say, uh, a cholesterol medication that you keep taking. Um, Can you walk us through that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's very different from the daily dose. Even if you take a daily dose of antidepressants, it's really sort of masking the symptoms. It's not really treating the underlying cause of the symptoms. So when you have a psychedelic experience, your perception shifts. You've sort of got a bigger picture. Uh, you start to think more about sort of the global interconnectivity of things. But you also, you, you approach it with a little bit of a what-if mindset, you know, what if I don't have to drink to be comfortable? What if I don't have to perform these compulsions in my OCD? Uh, which is just, it's a new way of thinking and it's sort of a, an open mind experience. And for some people, it's an open heart experience. And those things can really lead to behavior change. Yeah, you, you put it very clearly and it's interesting. And Professor, excuse me, Congressman Blumenauer, when you look at the situation and you think, so much of the history of America's drug war is rooted in discrimination and faulty premises. And even if you take that out, let's say you're not a Nixon-style, race-baiting drug war person, there's still this levels and layers of stigma attached to it. You know, someone looks up on the news and sees this discussion and thinks, oh, are we just hippies? Do we love mushrooms? When in fact, I'm curious how that affects policy, uh, because Congressman, if there are things that could work to help or enrich people's lives and they're not allowed to even try them because of big government, federal government, et cetera, that just seems like a mismatch. And I'm curious how you deal with that as someone who's sort of led on this, but also is in that political environment. No, absolutely. And part of the problem we have today is the federal government made a hash out of legalization of cannabis and has created all sorts of problems. What we have seen in Oregon is that the public understands this capacity to be a, a, a life-altering effect. We're fighting to allow, under the federal right to try legal uh, uh, laws, to be able to have greater opportunities for people to deal with things that are um, really profound in terms of anxiety dealing, approaching end of life, uh, addiction that has resisted uh, treatment, um, and doing this in a thoughtful, slow, deliberate fashion under supervision of trained professionals and taking two full years to be able to roll this out. I think this is a model for what we should be doing and it's going to make a huge difference in my state and I'm convinced soon across the country. Doctor, do you think there is a pathway here for uh, the use of these substances? Again, they're regulated, we're seeing this in one state, in a manner that actually can enrich uh, human consciousness? Or is that asking too much? And this really has to s stick to the therapeutic lane, if you will. Um, I'm pretty greedy, so I don't think we're going to have to stick to the therapeutic lane. I think it makes sense to look at the medical model first. But just like cannabis, where you started with a medical model and then more and more states are just having adult use, um, I think that's possible. But uh, everyone's sort of looking to Oregon to see how they do it. And I know Colorado is right behind them. And New York is talking about uh, changing our rules as well. It's a really important area. And we wanted to come to it with an open mind and, and hear from some of the folks working on this in the field, experts and policymakers. So appreciate uh, both of you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Ari. Thank you. Thank you. Where did COVID come from? It's a question people have been asking since this pandemic first began, and the information we've gotten over time has evolved. 
When it comes to the origins of COVID, there's been a new story that crossed the wires just this weekend that the Energy Department of the U.S. has now determined with what they call, quote, low confidence that an accidental lab leak in Wuhan, China, most likely caused the coronavirus pandemic. That reporting from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the FBI has also viewed the lab theory as the most likely explanation. Four other U.S. agencies, however, believe, based on their intelligence, that they still view it as transmitted naturally from an infected animal to a human. We will continue to follow this story with major consequences, and we'll follow the reports as we get them.